I invite you to take your Bibles or a Bible from the pew in front of you and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, 32 to 39. Remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Something had happened early on in these people's experience, very painful. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. But of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Father, I ask once more now for help in unfolding this word for your people. I ask that you would fulfill the great promise to open the ears of the deaf and the eyes of the blind and loosen the tongue of the dumb. Holy Spirit, draw near and protect us from distraction and grant that there would be liberty and salvation and Release from comfort and ease and excessive security that hinder love. In Jesus' name, amen. Three weeks ago, you remember, we looked at verses 24 and 25. And the point there was that we we Christians should gather together regularly, not neglect the assembling into the kinds of groupings where one another, you can consider each other. Consider each other. Your weaknesses and your potentials and your strength and your peculiarities, consider each other. So that you may stir up one another to love and good works. Remember that? Without that kind of regular exhortation toward one another, stirring each other up to love and good works, we will all drift back into apathy. We will come to love and expect and depend on more and more comforts and ease and security and safety, all of which get in the way of love in a world like this with floodlands, making thousands homeless and 85,000 refugees disappearing. 
either slaughtered or on a death march somewhere, who knows where, most of them women and children unable to care for themselves. In a world like that, if you drift back into apathy and comfort and ease and more and more surround yourself with all the cushions of Western life, you can't love. Therefore, this kind of regular in-each-other's-face exhortation about love and good works is essential. That was the point three weeks ago. A lot of questions emerge, don't they, in days like these when they're not different days, they're just coming home a little bit when suffering walks up close. Questions like whether God rules in these matters and we give an unabashed, clear answer to that question. God does rule over floods and war and disease. Who made man's mouth? Who makes him dumb and deaf and blind or seeing? Is it not I, the Lord? Exodus 4.11 Or Jesus acclaimed, The wind and the sea add, and the rivers obey him. Mark 4.41 Job, at the end of his experience of loss, he lost everything, said when he saw the purpose of God in it, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So that's our answer here. Yes, God is in control. There's another crucial question. Namely, how do you become in this situation the kind of person who breaks out of apathy and who throws off the need for ease and plenty and risks the loss of possessions and life in order to love, in order to do good deeds, in order to embrace suffering and align yourself with those who are hurting. Where does that come from? That's a question that has to be answered. See, when God does a thing, when, does, when God does a thing, He's always doing more than a thing. God's always got more than one purpose in everything that He does. He has individually tailored millions of purposes in thousands of lives. He has tentacles of purposes that will come to fruit in 50 years from this flood and that death walk. And woe to us 
if we prematurely indict the Almighty, who are we to design the universe and work out the millions upon millions of ripples that go out into the world reaping effects years and miles from every event in the world. God is up to things more awesome than you will ever imagine. If in His power... He releases justice on the one side in flood or disease or war or death. And if on the other side, He releases by His power mercy through awakening people to their need of God, He also does it by stirring people up to love and good works in the midst of pain which they choose to share. My question this morning from this text is how does He do that? Because that's what this text is about. How does He do that? How does God, through you in your small groups, beget and sustain the kind of people who don't run from suffering and need, whether it's cancer in our midst, or a broken marriage, or depression, or a lonely person, or whether it's refugees in Africa, or whether it's flood victims in South Dakota, North Dakota, Canada, whether it's that, don't retreat into our TV room. But do something that's costly. Where do people like that come from? How are they created and how are they sustained over the long haul? That's what this text is about. Look at verses 32 and 33. Something painful, something tragic had happened. Remember the former days when after being enlightened, that means converted to Christ, their eyes had been opened and they were granted to see Him and love Him and trust Him. You endured a great conflict of sufferings. Something terrible had happened. Partly by being made a a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So some people were involuntarily sucked into this thing and made miserable, and others chose to embrace it with them. You see that? A great conflict of suffering, some persecution, and then others became sharers with them in it. Now how? What what happened? What's going on here? Verse 34 gives us some light. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. Okay, there we get it. We get it. The first group are thrown in jail. And they didn't get all of them. So what are you going to do? You who didn't get thrown in jail, the first wave of the persecution. What are you going to do? Watch TV? You showed sympathy for the prisoners. Now how'd they do that? Well, prisons in those days, we went into a, a 
a castle last week in Durleton, Scotland, built in 1220. That's an old castle. And there's a, a chapel on the first level. Beneath the chapel underground is the dungeon. We went down into it. There's a little window. And then there's a hole on the left-hand side of the dungeon called the pit. And there's a little picture on the wall. You can't go down there. You get put down there. Prisons are not places with bars and air conditioning and TVs and food. Prisons are pits with no food unless you bring it to them. Nobody's feeding prisoners except relatives in those days. So what are you going to do? I mean, if they know we're Christians, they're going to do something to us too. But they're in the pit. Well, the text says that they showed sympathy to the prisoners. They felt what it must be like in the pit. And they said, look, we got to go. We just got to go. So they went. And here's what happened. You joyfully accepted the seizure. Your version might say plundering. You can't tell from the word whether it's official confiscation or whether it's unofficial uh, vandalism. One way or the other, they got their property ruined and taken. So some were imprisoned and others aligned themselves with them voluntarily and they paid a huge price for it. More persecution. Their possessions gone. Now here's here's a small group. This is a small group. Please get a vision for your small group. This is a small group, and half of it went to jail. And the other half had a meeting and prayed, and they made some decisions about some very costly love. And they went, and they identified with these prisoners. And while they were gone, evidently, people wrote, Get out, Christians, all over their house and broke the windows. Well, they probably didn't have windows in those days. And took their furniture and burned it in the streets. It's as though you were to take a weekend and uh, go over to the Red River and join them in whatever they're doing now. Might have been sandbagging once or might be some cleaning here in a few weeks. And you come home... And your house has spray paint all over it. Christians, get out. We hate Christians. And all the windows stoned out of your house with nasty letters inside and all your drawers and your cabinets rifled through. And you gather your small group into your house. It's covered with broken glass. And and you get in a circle and you sing a song of joy that you had been counted worthy of such abuse for the sake of the name. 
Acts 5.41. That's what they did here. You see that? You joyfully accepted the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. These people are some of my heroes. I love this text. I love it. I want to be like this so much. Don't you? Don't you want to be like this? Don't you want to be free from your love of things? Yes, you do. So evidently, the key here. What's the key? How do you become like this? What's going on here? And the, the key word is joyfully. They joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. So many of us love safety and we love comfort and we love ease and we love fun and we love lots of time to do our own thing. And if anybody gets in the way of that, we murmur, murmur, murmur. And if we get that, then we're happy. Happy. Why aren't these people like that? What's going on here with these people? Where did they come from? What planet did they land on this selfish earth from? Knowing, here's the, here's the answer to that question. Knowing, I'm still in verse 34, that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. When you know that you have a better and a lasting possession, you are not paralyzed by loss. Now that's not nearly strong enough, is it? <laughs> When you know that you have a better possession and one that lasts forever, you're not paralyzed by anger when you lose something. That's not nearly strong enough because it's not just that they weren't paralyzed. It says, and I didn't write it, Christian hedonist that I am, God wrote it. It says they rejoiced so evidently there must be a possession which is so much better and so long lasting that if you have it and you lose something in the name of it that's okay and it's great So, we really need to see what this possession is, don't we? We really need to see what this is. What is it? Well, it's everything this book has been about. This book is written to help believers love their treasure, their promise, their reward so deeply that this lifestyle emerges. And here we are at the end of chapter 10. We're going to take a break, come back to it in June, take it right on through the summer, then into the fall. And it's all about this new life. Everything left in this letter is about living by this faith. By falling in love with this possession. What is it? Well... It's the triumph over death, chapter 2, verse 15. It's the final resting for the saints, chapter 4, verse 9. 
It's the subduing of all of our enemies that Christ accomplished. Chapter 10, verse 13. It's the perfection that we enjoy by the one sacrifice, Jesus Christ. It's the ultimate goal of drawing near to God, having Him be our God forever. That's the new covenant. I will be among them. They will be my people. I will be their God forever. That's our treasure. That's the possession that is better. God. Our God. Our portion. Our Savior. Our refuge. Our hope. Our King. A better possession and an abiding one is not a thing. It's not a thing. Don't ever try to get your hope from a thing in heaven. A gift instead of the giver. It's fellowship with God. It's enjoying God. It's it's being accepted by God and being loved by God and being embraced by the Father. It's better. You see those two words? Don't miss those two words. Don't don't fly over words when you read the Bible. Stop and meditate. The two words I'm, I'm pointing you to are better and abiding. We have a better possession. I'm still in verse 34. A better possession and an abiding one. I love to link that up with Psalm uh, 1611. Don't you? The end of the psalm where it says, uh, Thou dost show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. Mark the word fullness. At thy right hand are pleasures. How long? Forever. That's lasting. So you take those two phrases, fullness and forever, and bring them on and lay them down like a, like a template over verse 34, and they just lay right down. We have a better possession and an abiding one. Better corresponds to fullness, and abiding corresponds to forever. And if you say, what's the reward? It's God in thy presence. His fullness of joy at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, the key seems to be, the key to love, the key to going to the prison, or going to the floods, or going to the refugees, or crossing the street, or going to the person that you don't know what you'll say to them because the marriage is so broken. The key to just doing it because you got to do it when you don't know what you're going to do when you get there is... Indomitable joy. Rooted in knowing that we have a better possession and an abiding one that is so awesomely satisfying and so completely sure that come what may, we've got to love like we've been loved. Let's take the word knowing. Knowing. Knowing, you gotta know this, folks. You can't just say, maybe, maybe there's something after the grave. Maybe it's better and maybe it's long. But I don't know. You won't love long like that. Not in dangerous situations. You will make the most of this life for your private self because you're just not sure that this might be the end of the line, baby. And if you don't get as many toys as you can have here, you blew it. So you got to know this thing. 
You got to know that we are passing through here. It's two seconds. It's a vapor's breath. And then eternal joy. I tell you, if you believe that, if you believe that, you will be one great risk taker. So how do you know? How do you know? And again, I answer, it's what the whole book is for. And not just Hebrews, but this book. That's what the book is for. Whatever was written in previous times, says in Romans 15.4, was written for our instruction that we might, through the steadfastness and encouragement of the book, have hope. This book is written. Jesus came. The whole thing, Christianity, is all about freeing you to take risks by putting a massive, unshakable hope under your life in a better and lasting possession. So, in Hebrews, it's Christ. It's all Christ. Christ is the one who, through His death, and resurrection destroyed the power of death. He became the high priest that opens the way into the throne of grace. He ever lives to make intercession for us. His blood cleanses my dirty conscience so that I can approach the living God clean in His righteousness. He obtained an eternal redemption, it says. He perfects us for all time. He makes all of our enemies a footstool for His feet And He's coming again a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And He's become the mediator of this glorious new covenant, which means sins forgiven, law written on my heart, and God is my God. It is all Christ. If you say, how can I know? It's Christ. Christ is the foundation of your knowing. He's done it all. You can't earn this possession. You can't merit this possession. You can't work for this possession. Christ bought it. He has it in His hands, free. There's only one way you can get it. Love it. Love it. Want it. The cost of food in the kingdom is hunger for the bread of heaven instead of the white bread of the world. The cost... For food in the kingdom is hunger for the bread of heaven. That's all you got to do. Do you want it this morning? Are you hungry? Or are you satisfied with yourself and your television and your computer and your job and your family? And that's it. God isn't important. Suffering isn't important. Pray that God would waken hunger in your life. Knowing that we have a better possession and an abiding one yields an indomitable joy and joy satisfies the heart and that releases you not to have to crave ease and comfort and security so that you can go. Now, what are the practical implications for us here? Just a couple of things. One, in our small groups and over the telephone and in our families, And among friends, we must do two things for each other here. We must continually warn each other 
of the incredibly high price of throwing away our confidence in this possession. And secondly, we must continually direct each other's attentions and affections toward the superior value and preciousness of the promises of God. Those are the two things we've got to do for each other over and over again. Let's look at the first one, the warning. Look at verses 38 and 39. My righteous one shall live by faith. Now that's you he's talking about here, if you will have it. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, there's the warning. We gotta talk like this to each other, folks. You gotta say this in your small group when somebody's on their way to destruction. If he shrinks back, my soul, God says, has no pleasure in him. 39, but we're not. You say this too to your small group. Be hopeful. Be hopeful for your group. Reach out and embrace them, leaders. It's like I want to embrace you and say this we applies to us in this room right now. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now, don't blow this off as, as though what's at stake in this is just a few more rewards in heaven. No. What's at stake is hell. When God says to a person, I have no pleasure in you, and when it says that the shrinking back is unto destruction, we're talking about hell. Not loss of reward. Therefore, I say to you on Sunday mornings, and you say to one another, if you're on a trajectory away from God, I don't care how many decisions you made for Him in the past. I don't care if you've served as an elder or a deacon or given $10,000 a year to this church for 20 years. If you're on a trajectory away from God, embracing sin as your portion and renouncing what God stands for, you're on your way to destruction. Turn, turn, turn. That's what we got to say to each other. And that's what I say to you now. There's no flippant guarantees of security because of past decisions. The evidence of being born of God is you don't turn away and forsake Him. Now here's the positive. You gotta emphasize the positive. There we spoke the negative warning. You gotta say that. But the vast amount of our time has to be devoted to the positive. Namely, let's look at verse 35. Do not throw away your confidence which has great reward. That's what you got to talk about. And you who are poets got to write poems about this. You who are songwriters got to write songs about this. We're going to pick Chuck Stedham up at the airport tonight. Chuck Stedham, remember Chuck? He's coming. <laughs> we voted him in and we're excited. And he's coming. 
in June, but he's flying in to be with us at the pastor's prayer and prayer and planning. <laughs> prayer and planning days for the next three days because we plan summer and fall, and so he's coming, and I'm going to say to him, just like I'm saying to you, we got to sing a new song. We said, we read it this morning. No, last night. No, this morning at the breakfast table. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless His name because He's great and greatly to be praised. You don't just sing the old songs. I love the old songs. This minister's conference I was at in Leicester, you got to hear this. They are so uh, devoted to the old that they don't have any musical instruments at all and they only sing the Psalter and the Scottish metrical Psalter. Well, I loved them. But folks, we got to sing a new song as well as an old song because he's worthy. He's so great. So poets and songwriters got to be released here to sing the new song. We got to find ways of doing verse 35, telling one another, look, the reward is so great. Don't throw this away. Don't throw this away. I was praying with my son and his wife on the phone yesterday about a relative of theirs who's throwing it away. And they were just about in tears because the marriage is being thrown away. God is being thrown away. And you just want to take people like that, like it says in James 5, and say, please, don't commit eternal suicide. Wake up. That's the negative. God is so much better than these toys. Come on. Wake up. Wake up. That's what we, that's why we're in small groups. That's why we come to church. That's the meaning of preaching. That's the meaning of Sunday school. That's the meaning of fighter verses. That's the meaning of small groups. That's the meaning of moms. That's the meaning of everything is to help one another wake up to God in His infinite superiority over everything. So let me, let me close like this. I, uh, did not have energy or time. I'm still waking up at three and four in the morning to write a poem, but you got to do this. But I did have the energy and the time to think of four competing values. Uh, money, sex, power, and popularity. Now, those are four things that people like, right? Anybody would be angry if a check for $1,000 just showed up in the mail for an anonymous donor today and said, use as God leads? Nobody would say, I wish I hadn't gotten that. Ooh. Well, a few, few really spiritual people might say it was a temptation, but everybody loves money. Everybody loves power. Call your own shots, pull your own strings. Everybody loves sex. Everybody loves popularity. Nobody likes to be disliked. Everybody wants to be liked. These are great competitors. These, these are killers. These things move into a heart and woo the heart and Satan kind of blows his comfortable breath upon them and pretty soon, Bible reading, yuck. Prayer, yuck. Worship, yuck. Fellowship with believers, yuck. 
grave danger. So, I just want to close by telling you, number one, God is better than money. God is better than money. Because God owns all the money, for one thing. All things are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. That's 1 Corinthians 3.22. All things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. In other words, to be known by God and to have God is to have everything. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the what? Let's say it again. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the... That's a lot. Don't, don't think you need to devote yourself to money now. God's got that taken care of, okay? Secondly, God is better than sex. I say it with emphasis to single people and to married people who, for whom it's grown crummy at home, maybe. He's better than sex. Here's how I know that. Jesus never had sex. Jesus never had sexual relations, single people who, who think that you will never have sex. And if you never get married, may God grant you never to have sex. And you lie awake at night thinking, how come everybody gets to have sex but me? Remember, Jesus never had sex. And Jesus, mark this, was the fullest, most complete, most glorious human being that ever walked this planet. No sex. Therefore, I conclude, sex is an image, it's a shadow of something so glorious in relationship that will be revealed to us and granted to us in the age to come when they neither marry nor are given in marriage, it is so phenomenally great it will make the most wildly ecstatic sexual event like a yawn in our memory. Jesus and God are better than sex. And thirdly, God is better than power. Having lots of People do what you want them to do and be known for having many responsibilities. Do you not know that you will judge angels? Put it off a few years and be a servant and you will be great. In the kingdom, and he will put you over ten cities. And finally, God is better than popularity. Listen, kids, teenagers, all of us like to be popular, but it's especially, it's especially powerful for a kid. You don't want to be disliked. You don't want to have people laugh at you. There's nothing horrible. I was laughed at crucial times in my life because of my inability to speak from the sixth grade on and nothing's more painful for a kid than to be rejected chosen last for the basketball team and laughed at because he's 
looks funnier because he can't talk right or can't go to the such and such. Listen. Popularity is a pipe dream if you're only popular among human nobodies. Humans, kids, are nobodies compared to God. If you really want to care about popularity, just bump it up a level to where it ought to be and say, how about angels? And how about God? Am I popular with God? Am I popular with angels? Paul says, the great thing is to know God. And then he checks himself and he says in Galatians 4, 9, no, to be known by God is the great thing. To be known. He knows me. He knows me. When I walk by, God says, I know, I know him. That's John. That's my son, John. And then all the nobodies, what, six billion of them, say, God, God knows you. That's cool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? That's talking about angels. <laughs> you know what the job description of angels are? Now, angels never die. They've never sinned. And they are, we're talking good angels now. They're, they're very powerful. We're talking Gabriel and Michael and are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are to inherit salvation? You talk about popularity. All of heaven knows the elect. All of heaven knows who the redeemed are and they serve us. Who cares whether the human nobodies laugh at us? So it goes on and on. Those are four, four things we tend to love that we should not tend to love so much. Because God is better and He's lasting. There's no comparison. God wins every time. I sat in the airport, Gatwick Airport. I'm done here. This will be my closing comment. Sat in the airport, just looking around. Northwest has a very nice terminal. And uh, I just looked at it. Incredible. Look at this carpet. Look at the way they have the seats in the V's. And look at the flowers. And look at these shops. And look at these, these beams and this light. This is incredible. And, and then I looked out at that DC-10. I said, that's incredible. This is awesome. And then God sowed this little seed in my mind. It can't compare. It can't compare to the last terminal. Just can't. Let's pray. Now you have heard this morning that love and a readiness to embrace others who are suffering comes from an indomitable joy rooted in a confidence in a better possession. That's what you've heard. 
And my question I want to close with for all of you is, do you have the possession? Please ask yourself that right now. Do you have this better and lasting possession? And if you're unsure or if you say no, you can have it right now. You don't have to do anything, go anywhere except in your heart. You need to see it as better and see it as lasting. Better than sin, better than money, better than power, better than sex, better than popularity. And embrace it as better and say, I receive you. You're better. I trust you. You're mine. I take you. Thank you for the free offer. So I invite you to do that. Father, this is a holy moment. As many of us are seeing afresh how much better you are than things we've given ourselves to. And I pray now that you would make us a loving people. I don't know what the agenda is. Maybe a dollar in the offering plate. Maybe going to visit some friends over in uh, the Dakotas and help them later on when the waters are down to get their house all cleaned out from the mud. Maybe it's getting on a plane and heading for Zaire and it's pouring our lives out there in some way. Maybe it's uh, going to visit somebody this afternoon who is in desperate need of a word of encouragement from Hebrews. But Lord, don't let us be cookie-cutter human beings who live for ease. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.